Well, hey, good morning, church. My name is Frank Lucas. I am one of the pastors here at Community Covenant Church. And as always, it is just so good to be able to be with you in this moment, whenever that may be for you. Today, we are going to continue on in our series, a study in the book, the uh, letter, if you will, of Ephesians. And if you missed last week's message, I want to encourage you to go back and take a listen to that this week. Uh, Really make that a priority if you can. Pastor Chris just did an amazing job with that message. He laid out an awesome framework for the letter of Ephesians and also provided some really important context that helps us understand Paul's heart in his writing, not just to the church, uh, but really to us as individuals. So the subtitle for the study that we are in right now in Ephesians is Grace to Know, Grace to Go. And the reason for that is the letter of Ephesians is easily separated into two different elements. We have what's called the indicative, and then we have what's called the imperative. These are terms that you're going to hear a lot over the coming weeks. But very simply put, the indicative is what is true, and then the imperative is what we do as a result of that truth. So grace to know, the indicative, grace to go, the imperative. Now, if we're not careful, we can sometimes... Uh, get caught up in maybe one or the other. But the truth is it's not an either or church. It is a both and. It's important that we always stay rooted in truth and that truth should move us towards something. It should initiate something in us. It should bear some sort of fruit. And that's exactly what James is talking about in James chapter 122 where he says we're called not to be simply hearers of the word but doers of the word as well. Now, it it starts in our minds, it moves down into our hearts, and it comes out of our hands and our feet. That is the, uh, our works, our actions are the fruit, right? The fruit of what God is doing in us and through us. So with that, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. If you were joining us in our online campus, uh, we're just so glad that you are there. You can simply click on the Bible tab at the bottom of the screen there and navigate, click over to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be uh, using the English Standard Version, the ESV, this morning. So while you're getting there, a quick story for you. Uh, I was fresh out of high school, uh, had a decent job, things were going well, moved out into my own place, my very first apartment, I was making decent money, but I also had a decent bit of responsibility. Uh, Things were good. Things were good. I was doing construction, though, and being so young, I happened to be the the low man on the totem pole, which meant I was the guy that had to crawl through the crawl space, and I was the guy who had to go up in the attic on the 100-degree days. And to say that I got dirty during the day would be a gross understatement. And so when I got home at the end of the day, what I needed was just a good hot shower. A good hot shower. And so I came home from my first day, uh, excuse me, from a long day at work, the first night in my apartment, and I got into the bathroom and I turned the water on, and what do I find? Well, I certainly have hot water. The problem was I didn't have a lot of it. There was no water pressure. Now, if all I needed was maybe a a, a little uh, rinse, I might have been okay. The problem was I needed more than a little rinse. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Water pressure is kind of a big deal when you're in the shower. You see, no one ever told me that I should actually check the water pressure when I was looking for a place to live. 
I grew up with great water pressure. I just thought everyone has great water pressure. I, like, the thought never crossed my mind. I would love to tell you that I picked up the phone and I made a phone call, and I reached out to the landlord or to a plumber or something like that, uh, but I didn't. I just kind of became complacent and accepted the fact that I don't have good water pressure as my new norm and my new reality. I tripled the amount of time I allocated, if you will, to kind of wash up at the end of the day. Now, this went on for a couple weeks until one day I just grew so frustrated that I said, there, there's got to be a better, uh, there's got to be more, right? Like, there, there has to be something that I'm missing. It can't be like this for everyone. Everyone would be complaining. So I, uh, I went out of my apartment. I went and started knocking on doors. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, I'm now introducing myself to my neighbors as the, the crazy guy who wants to come in and check their water, right? Uh, but a couple of people let me in, and what did I find out? That the water pressure issue was not building-wide. It was just apartment-wide. The issue was isolated to my unit. So I started investigating. I ended up down in the mechanical room, traced the pipes from my apartment all the way down to, uh, to where I was, and I found all these valves. And I was like, all right, I think this is it. And so I turned it. I ran back upstairs. And turns out I turned it off. So I ran back downstairs, and I turned it all the other, uh, the other direction, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, ran back upstairs. And it's as if I could hear the Alleluia chorus playing in the background as the water just came pouring out. It was unbelievable. It was awesome. It was like this great moment. I never thought that I would have been excited about water pressure. But here's the thing. As I look back, I realize that I could have avoided weeks of frustration if I just picked up the phone, if I just asked, asked someone who might have known, if I sought the counsel of someone who knew. Now, why do I share this story with you? Because the sad reality is that oftentimes, this is what our faith is like. We're content to just accept the low water pressure, right? We adopt this it is what it is sort of mentality. When in truth, there's so much more for us to experience. You see, church, as we read through Ephesians in chapter 1 specifically, what we have the opportunity to do is we get to experience Paul, experience God. There's this beautiful blend of compassion and conviction and confidence in his writing. It's like somewhere along the way there was this valve that was off that got opened up uh, and his faith just came alive and he never, ever looked back. And what Paul's doing here is he's writing to us and sharing that with us so that we too can have that same experience so that we can have the love and we can have the joy and we can have the hope and we can have the peace that is available only when we are in true union with Jesus Christ. Right? It's as if someone ripped a page out of his personal journal and as they're reading, it becomes quite clear that Paul didn't just simply know a lot of things about God, though that is really true. He was a very, very smart man. What was abundantly clear and evident was the fact that he actually knew him. When we read through the first chapter, we see a rawness and an honesty. We see uh, words that are just filled with truth, but yet written with 
intimacy. It's obvious that Paul just didn't know about God. He knew him. And, and man, I can't speak for you, church, but that's my hope and prayer, that if someone was to rip a page out of my journal and they were to take a snapshot of my life, that it was abundantly clear to them that I just didn't know a lot of things about God, but rather I actually knew him. And you see, because Paul knew the beauty in actually knowing, he wanted to share that with us, with the church, so that we too could experience that same blessing. That we might trek down into the mechanical room of our lives, find that valve, and, and open it up. So with that, let's pray and invite God into this moment. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for the opportunity to just experience Paul experiencing you through, through your word. And Father, as we, as we comb through these words today, these words written thousands of years ago, we just ask that you reveal yourself new and fresh to us. that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, that our hearts would be open and receptive to you. Father, that you would be the primary teacher in this moment, that you show us how we have room to grow. So Father, we ask for your blessing on this time, and we thank you now for all that you are doing in us, and through us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, all right, church. The opening chapter of Ephesians divided into two parts. And while we are looking at them independently for the sake of uh, time, it's really important that we acknowledge that they go together. In fact, most of the writing that we find in the New Testament would be uh, things that we would want to go through start to finish, right? These, the epistles, uh, the letters that are written that we find in the New Testament uh, would traditionally have been read aloud start to finish. And sometimes when we look at it in, in little chunks, we kind of miss out on what the author is trying to convey to us. Paul didn't break uh, chapter one into two different sermons. We did that, right? And, and so it's important for us to know that. Now, in the first half of chapter one, what we have is doctrine or knowledge. In the second half, what we're going to be looking at today, we have what we call doxology or worship. In fact, what we see from Paul here specifically in the second half, the verses we're going to look at today, 15 to 23, is a prayer. And what I love about this idea is this. It's not one or the other. Sometimes we, we think it is one or the other. I shared this image with you back in uh, the winter sometime. I was talking about the Trinity, this idea of doctrine and doxology, if I could have that slide. And the more we know about God, doctrine drives us to worshiping God, doxology. But the more we uh, worship God, the more inclined we are to learn more about him. And, and kind of round and round we go. And it's in this beautiful dynamic when, when doctrine and when doxology collide, when these two ideas, when these forces collide, that, that was a weak clap. When these two forces collide, what do we get? We, we have an experience 
with God. And that's exactly what Paul is calling us to in this prayer when he's praying for us, that, that we may experience God in all his fullness, that we become more than just righteous, religious rule followers, but rather we become a people who, in response to what God has done and what he is doing, we drop to our knees in worship and prayer and adoration. That's what Paul is calling us to. And so as we look to Paul's prayer in verses 15 to 23, we'll see that he desires for us immeasurably more, that we've got some room to grow, church. And we have room to grow in five key areas. Our knowledge of him, we've got room to grow in actually knowing him, in our hope in him, in understanding our worth in him, and in understanding his power and his might. So with that, let's take a look at what he says. We're not going to read through the whole passage again. It was read earlier, but I real quickly want to look at verses uh, 15 and 16. And it says this, for this reason, for this reason, we'll come back to that, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. A couple of quick things on this, for this reason. For this passage to make sense, we have to go back and fully understand what he says in verses 3 to 14. For this reason, it's as if there's like a, a therefore or a so then, right? So he's connecting what we learned last week with what he's about to say and what he wants us to know. And I'm not going to go back and, and share all of that with you now, what we covered last week. I really want to encourage you to check that out. But Paul, what he's doing is he's talking about our union in Christ okay, uh, that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we are loved, that we have been chosen, that we've been adopted, that we've been forgiven, that we have been redeemed, that we will uh, be lavished with his grace, that we will inherit his will, and that we will uh, have our salvation is guaranteed all for not our own glory, but rather for his glory, okay? That, that's what he talks about in verses 3 to 14. So for this reason, for those reasons, and for the fact that you have faith in God and you love others, all right, love of the saints, you're, you're loving God and you're loving others, you're doing exactly what Jesus has called us to, but yet I still don't cease to pray for you. I continue to give thanks for you, is what Paul is saying. Even though the church, even though you are doing exactly the right things, I'm going to continue to pray because I desire even more for you. Even though you're doing the right things, there is still room to grow. Ain't that the truth, church? Even when we do everything right, there is still room to grow. But here's a newsflash. You can't do everything right, so there is definitely room to grow. So, for us to understand Paul's prayer, what picks up in verse 17 for us to understand his prayer of enlightenment, there's a few key concepts that we really need to understand. Real quickly, enlightenment, it comes from the Holy Spirit. We can't understand the things of God apart from God. He's both the puzzle and the key. Wrap your head around that for a second. The Spirit of God reveals truth to us in his word. The Spirit of God gives us wisdom to understand that truth, and the Spirit of God gives us power to practice that truth, and to live it out in our lives. Enlightenment comes from the Holy Spirit. Enlightenment comes to the heart. 
Now, in current culture, we've separated our, our mind and our heart. We do this in our sermons all the time. You hear us talk about head versus heart, right? However, in antiquity, a first century Christian, they, they wouldn't have separated the two. You see, the heart was not just the epicenter for emotion. It was also the epicenter of all logic and reason and knowledge, as well as the source of our will. Enlightenment comes to not just your feelings, but your knowledge as well. And then enlightenment comes to those who believe, right? Enlightenment is for those who have made a decision to surrender their lives to Christ. Bottom line, church, for this, enlightenment is not something that can be achieved. It is something that is received. So with that understanding, let's, let's shift our attention to verse 17 uh, where the, the prayer starts. And as I said earlier, there's five key areas from what I can see of a measurable growth where we have room to grow that Paul desires for us. A lot of scholars break this down into to three points, but as I was going through and preparing for this, um, I just couldn't help but break it down into to five areas. Now, a, another thing that's important to understand is regardless of where you find yourself on your faith journey, this could be the very first sermon that you've ever heard, the first time that you have ever uh, heard the good news of Jesus Christ, or you could be perhaps maybe even a lifelong Christian, and this is the thousandth time that you've heard these words being shared. Uh, it doesn't matter. You could be over there. You could be over here. What I know is this, is this message, these words are for you. There is room to grow no matter who you are. No matter how long you've been following Christ, there is room to grow. Paul is desiring more for you. So the first point is this in verse 17, that we would grow in our knowledge of him. There's that doctrine piece. In verse 17, it says that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Now, when we hear the word, uh, the word wisdom, we tend to think of kind of this... Uh, big, uh, wonderful, philosophical sort of thing, this idea. The reality is the word wisdom comes with it like this connotation uh, that it's grand. But if we were to actually look at the Greek here, we'd see that the Greek word for wisdom, Sophia, uh, is actually just practical knowledge, right? It, it's nothing special. It's just practical knowledge. And when we translate it that way, what we see is that Paul's saying, you just need to know more. You just need to know more about God. We need to grow in our knowledge of God. Paul knows that in order to experience the life Christ has set apart for us, we need to know fully who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. That's why he takes the time in verses 3 to 14 to give us the most glorious, truth-filled, run-on sentence of all time. We can always be learning more about God. Now, there are plenty of tremendous resources for this. Uh, there's a few that'll be, if you click on the notes tab, there's a couple of things that I've listed out there for you, a few of my favorites. They're all free, uh, no worries. So check those out when you have some time. Uh, but there's lots of ways for us to grow in our knowledge of God. However, however, a word of caution. It's important to remember, though, that we don't get caught up only in the knowledge of God, but we balance that out with actually knowing God. God, like I talked about earlier, which is point two, is that we grow in our knowing him. 
the second half of that verse, verse 17, all right? Uh, it says, uh, may give you the spirit of wisdom, all right? And of revelation in the knowledge of him, that he reveals himself to you. Katie and I are gonna be celebrating 14 years of marriage in just a couple of weeks, and that's awesome. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing. I, I absolutely love it. But early on, but, and, early on in our relationship, we spent a lot of time getting to know a lot about one another, right? I remember the first few months we'd be on the phone and I'd be learning things about her and she'd take interest in me and learn things about me and all this sort of stuff. But I think if we're really honest, I would say it wasn't until we were married and actually lived together that we began to truly know one another. It was when we experienced intimacy. Physically, yes, but emotionally as well that our relationship began to flourish. You see, knowing stuff about Katie wasn't enough. I actually had to know her. I had to experience her. And the same is true when we look at our relationship with God. There is a level of intimacy that cannot be reached by simply knowing more theology. Get this, atheists can know a lot about God, but have never met him. Right? Atheists can know a lot about God, but have never met him whether it's a quiet moment in prayer or a corporate time of worship, it's in these moments that we begin to truly know him and experience him. Now, I could go on and list a bunch of strategies for you here and uh, things that you could try and things you could do, spiritual disciplines and practices and all these things, but there's just one verse I want to share with you, one verse that has completely changed my life, Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. I had this hanging up in my office. It's a, a huge reminder for me every day that I simply need to just be still. I need to slow down. And I remember the first time I started thinking about this, the, the first question I had for God was, well, how long do I need to be still? And it was like I heard vividly, uh, clear as day, him say, for as long as it takes, Frank. For as long as it takes for you to see and experience the extraordinary God in the ordinary moments of your life. Be still, slow down, make room for him. Paul's desire is for us to grow in both our knowledge of and our knowing him. The third thing is this, grow in our hope that is found in him that we may grow in our hope that's found in him. Uh, verse 18 says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Two words stand out there. I have them underlined. First, calling. It's a particularly important word in Christian vocabulary. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but if you were to break it down in Greek, uh, you would maybe hear something like this. It's the invitation to the privileges of the gospel. All right, your calling is the invitation to the privileges of the gospel. We as the church, both individually and collectively, have been by the grace of God called out, set apart. There is an invitation waiting for you. The second word underlined there, hope. In recent years, 
We have become desensitized to the true meaning of this word. We use it so often or frequently that it has little to no significance. I hope that it doesn't rain today. I hope that the Patriots win tonight. I hope that Brady re-signs with the Pats somehow. I don't know how it's going to happen. I, I hope I get the promotion. I hope I score well on the test. I hope my guy wins in November. I hope I never have to do distance learning again. The list goes on and on. You get the idea. Something you may notice from this list, though, is that more often than not, the things we hope for are self-serving, right? They serve us. They serve us. More importantly than that, though, there's a degree of uncertainty embedded within them. We hope because we don't know. Now contrast that with first century Christianity. The word hope, uh, el pais, is, is packed, packed with rich, deep meaning. Rather than something we merely wish for or dream of, it would probably be better defined as, as uh, hope is a, an actively wait, uh, excuse me, hope, actively waiting with a bold and confident expectation of what is to be. Screenshot that, write it down, whatever it is. This is our hope in Christ. We are actively waiting with a bold, a confident expectation of what is to be. That is, uh, there is no uncertainty, church, in biblical hope. The hope that we have been called to is the hope of salvation, the hope of righteousness, the hope of sanctification and glorification and justification, hope of a resurrected body where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. There is a hope for eternal life, not for someday in the future when we die, but for right now that we can live the life that Christ has called us to live all right, that we would experience the riches of his grace in this moment. We have hope for the glory of God that uh, one day every tongue would confess, every knee would bow and declare that he is Lord, right? That his riches, his grace would just cover and flood the earth. You see, we need to grow, church, in our knowledge or in our knowing of our hope in Christ. We need to have a bold and confident expectation that what has been started will be completed. We don't simply dream of greater things. We hope because we know greater things are coming. That is the hope we have in Christ. It's not some pipe dream. It's happening. It's happening. Church, we have room to grow in our knowledge we have room to grow in our knowing. We have room to grow in our hoping. We also have room to grow in our understanding of our worth. In verse 18, the second half says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now listen, many, many scholars have gone back and forth on this particular phrase for, for hundreds of years. Some think it's talking about our inheritance in Christ, while others argue that it's God's inheritance. I don't claim to be the absolute authority on the matter here, uh, but for me, I feel that what this passage, what Paul is sharing with us is that we are God's inheritance. The implications to that truth are real. They're huge. When we truly know and understand this truth, when we accept this truth, it changes how we view ourselves. We no longer view ourselves as someone that is broken without value. You see, that's the narrative that the world so desperately wants you to think. 
so they can sell you something. But when we fall prey to this, it causes us to, to try and earn favor. We work harder. But God's narrative, God's narrative is different than the world's narrative. God's narrative is such that you are of infinite value. And that value is not determined by anything that you have done, but rather based solely on the price that was actually paid for you. What a beautiful image to consider that God looks at us as part of his wealth, his riches, not because we earned it, but because of the price he was willing to pay for it. Lastly, point five is this. We have room to grow in knowing God's immeasurable power and might. In verse 19, it says, and what is this immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? You see, church, we are invited to know and to experience fully the same power that raised Christ, Christ from the dead. It's that power that God uses in relentless pursuit of a relationship with us. It's pretty incredible when you actually stop to think about it. The problem is many of us, you know what we're doing? We're taking showers with low water pressure. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, rewind and go and watch the beginning of the message. We kind of have gotten content there. But God's power and might, it's, it's continual. It wasn't all used up on the third day, church. And God has invited us through his son, Jesus Christ, to access that same power. But yet for many of us, we've never actually drawn on the account. We've never turned the valve and, and experienced God in all his fullness, his power and might. An example of this, when I was a boy, uh, I had a savings account. I had a little green passbook for Citizens Bank. And every Christmas and every birthday, aunts and uncles, my grandma, uh, they would give me some money, and I could never spend the money. I had to put it in the bank. And so we would go to the bank, and I would put the money in. The problem is I put money in, but money never, ever came back. You see, I had no access to it. I mean, technically I had access, but I didn't have access, access as a little kid to it. What good is having a savings account if you can't spend the money, right? I remember one day when I was old enough, I grabbed my passbook and I rode my bike down to Citizens Bank. And the teller knew me and I walked in and I withdrew some money from the bank so I could go and buy something at the corner store across the street at Duffy's. We were in desperate need of wiffle balls and wiffle ball bats. And I, True story, I, I took the money out and it was like this, this aha moment. I was like, man, I've been putting all this money in and, and now I can take money out. Well, one, once I did that one time, I, I did it another time and another time. And before you knew it, I drew out a lot more money than I, I put back in. I got to this point where there was, there was nothing left. Now just imagine, church, that there's an account where the balance never decreases, it only increases. There's a well that, no matter how much you draw, never runs dry. You see, that's the invitation that is awaiting your response. Now, I'm not quite sure which one of these areas God may be pressing apart upon your heart in this moment. It could be uh, to grow in your knowledge of God or simply to grow in your knowing of him, your your experiences, your, your quietness with him. 
It could be growing in your understanding of the hope we have in Christ, or it could be laying down the price tag the world has put on you in exchange for the price tag that God has put on you. Or maybe it's in growing in your understanding of God's power and might in relentless pursuit of you, and that he's using his resurrection power to raise you to life. So I don't know which one of these areas is pressing on you, but what I know is that he is calling your name. There's a story about a a young father and son in England during World War II. They were caught in an air raid. There were bombs going off everywhere. As they looked out, it, it seemed as if the sky was on fire. Buildings were crashing down all around. People were running, screaming, scared. Smoke fills the air. The father and the son, they were running to to try and take cover. They came across a, a crater in the ground from a bomb that went off from one of the explosions and Trying to seek shelter, the father jumped into the hole with his thinking that they're not going to bomb the same spot twice, so this might be a safe spot for my son and I. And, and so he jumps in, and from the bottom, he, he holds up his arms, and he shouts out to his son, son, just jump, jump down to me. But the boy was terrified, because in the, the darkness, he wasn't able to actually see his father. He cried out, but dad, I can't, I can't see you. And the father, though, looking up against the fire-filled sky, sees the, the shadow of his son, and he looks up and he just says, son, you may not be able to see me, but, but I can see you. So just trust me. Just trust me and jump. I've got you. see church. The little boy was terrified and he jumped not because he could see but rather because he was seen. He was able to step in faith not because anything he knew but rather because he was known. We are empowered to face whatever comes our way church not because of what we can see, because we, but rather because we have a clear, bold, confident expectation of what is to be, that we have a bold, confident expectation that we are seen. So in this moment, wherever you are, I want to invite you to take that step, whatever that may look like for you. Take a step into become known to the God who laid down his life for you. In the chat, there will be a place for you to respond where someone is willing to pray with you, to chat with you, and to talk with you. And I would love for you to, to take advantage of that opportunity. Don't put off till tomorrow what, what God is calling on you to respond to in this moment. It's an amazing grace that we have in him, that we've been set free from our brokenness. We've been set free from the chain, chains that have held us down. 
that even though you may love God and you may love others, there is still some room to grow that you can experience life in the fullest possible way through the power of Jesus Christ, through the spirit that he has given us. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are a people that, Father, even though there are moments where we cannot see that we are seen. Father, that there are moments where we may not know, but that doesn't mean that we are not known. From the very beginning of time, you have loved us. You have chosen us. You have welcomed us into your family. You paid the price for us. You gave your son for us. And so, Father, in this moment, we, we turn our hearts over to you, acknowledging that we are broken, that we can't do this on our own. That you gave us your son, that you conquered death so that we could have relationship with you. That we could experience life and have it in the fullest possible way. And so, Father, we... We ask that you allow us, both as individuals and collectively, to be a church that sees that there is room to grow, that we never stop, that we never stop, God. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love, your sacrifice. And we pray these things in your heavenly name by all things by whom all things are possible. Amen.